0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I want to begin by reading from the book of Proverbs, a short passage. This is not going to be the passage that I'll primarily preach from in this sermon, but I think you'll see kind of how it all connects together. But I want to begin with this passage and then Pray that God uh, would use our time together. It's Proverbs chapter 29, and it's verse 18. It'll be on the screen for you again. It's very short. I might read it twice. Listen to these words. It says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Those words sink in for a minute. I'll let the Spirit just do some work there. We read it again where there is no prophetic vision the people cast off restraint but blessed is he who keeps the law father i ask that you would come and um, speak to us um, or pray that you would come and, and break through hard places of our hearts wounded places of our hearts guarded places of our hearts And pray, Father, that you would come and by your spirit um, paint a picture, cast a vision inside of us for who you want us to be. Trust that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a piece of paper, if you're a note taker, or if you have a phone or a tablet or something that you can maybe take a couple of notes on, I think... Uh, th- this is a little bit off script from whatever's in the slides, so uh, people that run the slides probably love me when I do things like this. But I, I, I had this picture in my head earlier as they were worshiping, and I thought this might be helpful. It uh, may not be helpful for all of you, maybe for some of you. Again, if you have a piece of paper, a way to take notes, um, I, want, I want you to think in um, kind of like two categories, two columns maybe. Um, so, you know, line down the center, you've got two columns. In one column... I should do this because that would probably be right for the way you're reading. In this column over here, in your left-hand column, um, write the word me. And then in this other column on the, on the right side, uh, write, write the word uh, church or church family. right? And then maybe, maybe you would draw a line through the center, kind of like a, make, it, make it a plus sign or a big cross. And now you have two boxes down below. Um... Write um, future in, in both of those lower boxes. And I'm kind of jumping all over the place as I go back to this because this is just in my head so you can see how my head thinks. I do think in linear columns and boxes, but I jump around from box to box. It's pretty crazy, right? Um, so again, you should have a square now, right, that, that, that says me. Underneath that word me, write currently. Me currently. And then underneath that, in that other square up at the top, you should have a box that says church or church family. Uh, Write the word currently underneath that. And now, you go down to your lower boxes. And you had the word future in both boxes. Now, write the word me under the word future. And write church family under the other word future. So if I'm tracking in my head right, if my image in my head, my picture, my vision right now is right, if the lenses on my head are right, then there should be a me currently, there should be a church or church family currently, there should be a future me, and there should be a future church family. Tracking with me? All I want you to do with those four boxes, I don't care how else you take notes today from anything that I say, I, I, for some reason, I just think maybe this would be helpful, this visual. Uh, however you take notes or however you remember things, uh, even if you're drawing little pictures inside those boxes, my hope is that God would give all of us, before we walk out of here today, a single word or a single image for each of those boxes. But answer questions like, where are you at currently? How are you doing currently, the current you, right? Right? One word or one image that would describe that. What about my church family? What about my church? How is my church doing right now? And what's a word that would describe that or an image? And if I were to think about the future me and the future church family, what would I hope for and desire the most in both boxes? What would that word be or image? Those kinds of questions, Uh, now I'm back on script for those of you that are doing slides, took six minutes off, uh, so this sermon will probably be six minutes longer, which means we'll probably be here for an hour and six minutes, sorry. Those kinds of questions along with the passage that I opened up with, that uh, Proverbs, what, 29, 18, hope I got that right, yep, 29, 18, Uh, those questions, those kinds of questions that we're just asking, uh, that kind of uh, exercise, and that passage, uh, those were the, kind of the foundation for something that our elder team, our pastoral team, did back in 2019-2020. Um, uh, from November of 2019 to February of 2020, our pastoral team uh, spent, uh, I would say, some considerable time uh, dreaming together about our lives and dreaming together about the life of this church family. And what we did in that time from that November to February, 2019, 2020. And what we did was we, we simply, when we came together, we would prayerfully whiteboard a whole bunch of words. Uh, every word we could think of that would describe our current reality, somewhat personally, and for our church family, as well as our future hopes and dreams, somewhat personally, because our lives as pastors, it's integrated in the church family, right? Um... We hoped and we dreamed about what the future may look like uh, for all of us. And and we used words. Um, Just at at times, just single words, sometimes little phrases. And we kind of collected them. We kept track of them as we whiteboarded. We wrote them down on pieces of paper. I would email them out to our, our pastoral team. Then we would get back together again a few weeks later to the next month, and we would do it all over again. And here's the thing. Here's what we weren't doing. We weren't just aimlessly dreaming. Anybody know what it's like to aimlessly dream? Okay? Like, I dream aimlessly about my motorcycle having the biggest motorcycle motor in the world. And it's an aimless dream. has no point or reason to it, right? It's a dreaming to dream. There's also, you know what therapeutic dreaming is? Anybody ever hear this therapeutic dreaming? You know, therapeutic dreaming is, is all about you are trying to escape the painful reality of life. And so you dream to cover up the pain of life. I grew up this way. Um, My reality growing up was so painful. And some of you in this room have far more painful stories than I do. Mine was so painful I learned how to sit in the trees in the woods and dream about being a different person, becoming somebody different to the extent that that would cover my pain, right? That's therapeutic dreaming. So we weren't doing that. We weren't just dreaming to dream as a pastoral team. We weren't therapeutically dreaming either. We were what we would call dreaming on purpose. Uh, we were prayerfully dreaming about the future. We had this desire. We were asking God, please show us. As leaders in this church, as responsible shepherds and pastors, uh, help us to see where you want to take us so that we would grow spiritually and numerically um, and as you can imagine um, I, I think Nelson I think we probably counted no less than four or five hundred words I think maybe on on the, that we recorded in our descriptions I mean we have four guys in a room and uh, we go home and talk to our wives even and spread out throughout the church and we had a bunch of words that we whiteboarded during that season Um, We believed these words could be crafted into what I would call a purpose statement. Anybody familiar with a purpose statement? Raise your hand if you have a purpose statement for your life. Do you have a purpose statement for your life that you have written down somewhere? Nobody's raising their hand. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... (laughs) No, I did. (laughs) Um, Well, most of us don't. That's the reality. Most of us don't have purpose statements for our life. Um, Can I tell you that... uh, It's a really um, encouraging and really important um, discipline, though, to spend some time each year writing a purpose statement. And you answer questions like, who do I want to become? What's my vision? What do I want to do? My mission. What mountaintops will I die on? My values. And how am I going to get there? Some goals. That becomes a purpose statement. Vision, its mission, its values, and its goals. And that was our hope. Our hope during that time was to create a statement like that, that we could equip and empower a church family, not only to just, like, become a bigger, better church, maybe you say it that way, because that wasn't really the entire intent. The, The intent was to take each individual person and say, how can I, as a shepherd, as an elder, as a leader, how can I help you get a vision and a mission and a purpose for your life so that you could live on purpose, right? And not like just live in defense mode. You know what it's like to live in defense mode, right? I see you call it survival mode. Like just crap is just flying at you from every direction and you're just like, oh, crap. And you're just, you can't even get a punch out. You're just blocking and you're trying to find shelter. Um, So the funny thing is, I shouldn't say funny, but providential thing is, we did that four months or so of, uh, of uh, labor. We got the statements together. I think there was even one church family meeting there in very early March, end of February. And some of you might remember, we did it different. Like, it wasn't just all these boring business reports. We put together teams within our church family, and we put these statements out to each team. We said, now, you gotta, you gotta communicate the statement in a creative way. Does anybody remember this? There's a few of you. Who won the trophy? Heather in the back says, I want the trophy. Heather, Heather, Heather now will always tell you that she was the first member here, and I always argue, no, I was. <laughs> I, I'm certain that Heather will probably outlast me here um, for that reason, so that my voice will go away and she can say, I was the first. Um, we, had these, we had teams. So it was a different, you know, you think of church business meeting, boring. <laughs> right? We found a creative way to do a family meeting where we eat food and then each team came up and communicated these little statements. And, uh, and Heather's team won the trophy. And by the way, the trophy is out there by the printer. It's still here. So we did give a trophy away. Long story short, that was as far as we got because you all know what happened in March of 2020, right? Like I said, providentially, I think what happened was COVID. <laughs> COVID happened. Um, the political upheaval, right? They had uh, racial protests and uh, rioting going on all, all over the, the country and the world even. Um, we face as a church family of what felt like for a church of our size, it felt like a, like a flood of family transitions. People moving to different cities, moving away and leaving um, and some just moving away from the church altogether and never coming back to any church whatsoever. Um, And and so there was a lot, it it interrupted our plans big time. Um, And and then, so what happened from there, you go back to the survival mode thing is that for a little over two years, I would say, if I look back, I go, man, I think for a little over two years, we kind of went into survival mode. I would even say for us as a family, my wife and I and our kiddos, in many ways went into survival mode and we faced some things as a family that were really testing and hard. Um, And I know many of you did too, in many different ways. And then that makes up the story of a church family, right? Because we're all here. All of us faced some really tough things <laughs> over the last couple of years. I think what happened in those last couple of years, it seems to me like the healthiest way to say is I think the Lord saw fit um, maybe to test um, and to solidify, maybe or even refine uh, what our elder team had put together back then in 2019, 2020. So now, as I said, back then, we put a crap ton of words on a whiteboard. And we kept track of them. We tried to capture what we believed the Lord was up to in our midst. So let me just ask this question again. When you go back to that, that picture of um, you personally, that word me, currently, where you at, what word would it describe you? And then for your church family, for this church, what word would describe this church If somebody came to you and said, hey, how are you doing? How's your heart doing? What's your life like? What one word would you use to describe that? And if somebody came to you and was like, you go to church? What do you go to church at? What's your church like? What's the one word you would say? Um, Out of all the words that we wrote down, I think the one word, and you tell me if our elders are way off base on this, but I think the one word that we wrote down was the word Family. You know, I would like to get a Sunday where I get up here and not absolutely fall apart. I think that's the word we came up with, um, the word family. One of the things I think we recognize is that many of us that God has drawn to this church come from some pretty jacked up family situations, whether it's our own upbringing or whether it's just the current family we're kind of living in, Right? But there's just some jacked up stories in our backgrounds. And somehow or another, like God put us together, and and I've heard that word family. We've heard other words, like authentic and real, um, truthful, like we're really concerned about the truth here, Um, but family. I think uh, one of the statements that uh, you probably heard me use, I think I've heard others use, is we're like a family of broken people, various backgrounds, like diversity, um, being formed by the message of the gospel. That's a, that's a great picture, I think, when you think about a broken family, various different backgrounds, <coughs> formed by the message of the gospel. That was a phrase or, or the picture we came up with kind of for like a current reality as we did what we were doing. Um, but it, here's what we also realized It's not enough to just merely diagnose who you are in a current reality. It's not enough. You diagnose your current reality without a prescription. So, diagnosis without prescription leads to death. Right? You diagnose somebody with cancer and they refuse the treatment, they're going to die sooner. Right? So, we diagnosed a really good thing about our church family. We, we, We diagnosed who we are currently. Without any prescription for future growth, we realized as a church family, we probably would die, right? Again, going back to Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, what did it say? Um, a lack of vision, a lack of future thinking vision, people being stuck in survival mode, never breaking free from that, and getting out in an aggressive, assertive way and saying, this is where we're headed, um, people who lack vision wind up spinning their wheels aimlessly through life and then wind up in destruction. Spiritually speaking, and in many ways, physically speaking too. One of the things we didn't believe as a, as a pastoral team is we didn't believe that God had called us to proclaim a death sentence over a church family. We didn't think that was our calling. Um, not saying that, that doesn't sometimes happen. Sometimes pastors do need to proclaim death and say, "This is the day we're going to close doors. It's time for this church to be done." Churches live for a season and they die at some point. Some churches live longer than others. None will probably be in existence for eternity here on this earth. Okay. But we did not believe that that was where God was calling us. We're not going to proclaim a death sentence over the church. So we asked the Lord, "What kind of church you want us to be?" Right now we're down in the lower boxes. on your your image. We're also asking God, who do you want us to be as elders? Who do you want us to be as people? What's the future picture you have for me? And we each would go around the room. We would share personally where God, we thought God was taking us and who he wanted us to become. And therefore then, this is who we believe God probably wants the church to become in the future as we continue to grow. Uh, We could, and here's the thing, we could have settled um, for the phrase that I already gave us, Right? The description I already gave us was broken, diverse, gospel formed. Really good things. There are lots of churches who have like, diversity across their banner, and that is exactly who they want to be. And can I just say that as we thought about that, diversity, not wrong, good. But if diversity is what you're aiming for, you've aimed lower than a heavenly picture. There's something bigger than diverse, something that actually envelops diversity. One of those phrases would be gospel-formed. If you're gospel-formed, you will be diverse. So it felt like, it's almost like if we would have made diversity our vision, our vision would be so small, we would never attain what God was actually calling us to. Broken. What if we just wanted to have a vision to just be a broken church? Great. Good. But there's something bigger than that, too. And so what we came up with Um, is we came up with three words. Besides family, we came up with transformed, glorify, and missional. Those those words felt like they were so big that they actually encompassed that picture of being gospel-formed, being diverse, and being a broken family, right? And so what we actually landed on was three phrases. We want to be a transformed family. We want to be a family who glorifies God we want to be a family of missional disciples. So that's where I want to take us for the next, hopefully only 20 more minutes or so. Um, I want to think about these three phrases biblically together. I want to put some passages together and see how God would uh, use it uh, for each of us and then for us collectively. So let's think first about being a transformed family. Okay, A transformed family. Romans 12, 1 through 2. If you have your Bibles, you can look it up. It'll be on the screen too. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So these verses, we felt were foundational to this truth about being a transformed family. It's really, it's really a challenge to that. Be a transformed family. Paul's writing that letter to a church, right? Group of churches in Rome. (coughs) talking about transformation specifically. And the question is, what is transformation? What is that? Uh, We could probably all spend all day thinking and talking about what transformation is, what it looks like, what it means. We may all have different ways of explaining it. What is transformation? How about this, how does this transformation happen? And then how do you keep on becoming a transformed family? If you just think about that last question long enough, if you're a geek like me, I mean it's a ridiculous question (laughs) okay how do you keep on becoming a transformed family or you could say how do you keep on becoming a transforming family you know what that question dictates right it it dictates a, a consistent constant change so to illustrate really fast and this gosh off the cuff but I think worth it off the cuff if we came in next week and um and unbeknownst to you guys, our pastoral team was like, man, we want to be about change. And so we're gonna turn this church sideways. Next week you came in and there's these long rows of chairs and you're all facing that wall. Do you know how many, probably not emails or text messages we might get from people who were like, what the heck are you doing to my church? <laughs> you know, because the, the the one thing that's constant about life is this, change, agreed? It's constant. What's the one thing we hate the most? Change. Even I love change, but I hate change. Okay, I love, I really, I actually really love change. I love the adventure of it. I love not knowing what's in front of us necessarily, but knowing that I got to trust God for that change, right? I got, I, you know, I remember, yeah, I gotta stop. I can tell you all sorts of stories about how I love change, but the reality is it scares the ever-living heck out of me. But there are some of you here that are like, no, my routine is my routine, and don't you dare mess with That kind of an attitude inside of us means that you may never grow spiritually. In fact, you may shipwreck your faith. Because a true, authentic, living faith means change. I don't care if you're the oldest sinner in the room or not. This is a conversation we had today. Um, Change is important. That's what transformation is all about. How do we keep on becoming a transforming family? Well, here's the thing about the passage I read. Romans 12, right? One through two. Uh, Here's the thing about transformation. Transformation begins with understanding the ongoing mercy of God. Every breath that you and I take uh, is an act of mercy from our Heavenly Father. Right? Like the illustration is God made this beautiful thing. And what did you and I do? Jacked it up, right? Donnie used the illustration with the, in our prayer meeting earlier this morning that you think of being a mom or, or, let's say, a dad, and you have a beautiful little baby. There's one in the back that I have yet to meet, and y'all better not leave until I do. <laughs> it's good to see you guys, by the way. Uh, you got this new little baby, and somebody comes and tries to injure that baby. Oh, the wrath of mom and dad against anyone who would jack with that new baby, right? And yet, God in his mercy, he's withheld what you and I deserve. And you see it in the Garden of Eden, like we talked about too. Instead of coming in angry that Adam and Eve totally jacked up the garden and ate the fruit like they were told not to do, what does God do? Sheds blood for the first time and covers his people to cover their shame and their nakedness. (coughs) Don't get me wrong, he doesn't overlook the sin still consequences you're banished from the garden of eden until such time as i come back and set things all right and by the way i will come back and set things right i will crush the serpent there will be a day when all satan sin and the grave will be completely annihilated and your struggle against those forces will be done and everything will be as it should be that's mercy that's mercy Transformation begins with understanding the ongoing mercy of God. Every breath that you and I take is an act of mercy from our Heavenly Father. He has withheld what we rightly deserve. It's not like, I was a pretty good person, really, who made some mistakes here and there. God should let me into His presence. That's not the real story, according to the Bible. According to the Bible, it's like, no, I was a really jacked up, messed up person horrible person and god came and saved a wretch like me by his grace and his mercy his mercies are new every morning we did that through the work of jesus at the cross and the empty tomb so god's mercy is first when it comes to transformation you got to lay hold of god's mercy oh that each of us would wake up every morning and go god's mercy is new for me this morning again God, please give me the same mercy you gave me yesterday. That we would wake up and recognize our place in front of him and the gift that he gives us and what he withholds from us on a daily basis because of our trust and belief. Not because of our trust and belief, but because of what his son did and because of the faith that he gave us to trust in his son. God's mercy is first. Next step in transformation, according to the passage, is understanding that you're actually created to worship. You and I were created to worship we're created to bow down to something, created to pay ultimate attention, to pay tribute to, to be consumed by something. Anybody here ever dream about getting something really cool? Like I dreamed for years about getting a Harley. I drove Hondas and Yamahas. Not bad. I dreamed about a Harley though. Anybody, raise your hand if you dreamed about getting something. Raise your hand if you're dreaming about something you really want right now. Like there's something I really want. I don't want to live in town anymore. I want to live in the country. My wife and I want to have a wraparound deck. We want to have places for our kids to come ride dirt bikes and our grandkids to stay. You know, that's what we want. That's a dream we have, a very physical dream. It might seem very unspiritual. Um, there's nothing necessarily unspiritual about that, though. You ever get consumed by a dream like that? Like, it's all you could think about? You're up late at night looking at YouTube videos or pictures on, you know, what is it, Zillow and some of those other places where you're just dreaming about those. You, just, you kind of want you get consumed. That's, that's a picture of worship. It's a picture. I'm not saying that looking at websites for a house is wrong. The worship of God, the act of worship, is far more than Sunday morning experience. Because Sunday mornings are meant to be the overflow of how we live throughout the rest of the week, consumed with God throughout the week to the extent that when we get together as a church family on Sunday morning, it erupts in praise, adoration, and attention to God, our Father, who saved us by His mercy. Here's the thing. When you and I really wrestle with His mercy, when we realize that every breath we take is an extension of that mercy, and then I think what happens is we, is we will then increasingly submit and surrender our lives to this King named Jesus, our Creator, our Redeemer, gave us life brutally at a cross, though it should have been you and I on that cross. The reality is you and I were the ones putting Him on that cross. Because of our sin, you and I held the nails and the hammer. We swung it. You and I were the ones who swung the whip. We crushed the crown of thorns onto his head. We spat in his face. We divided up his clothing, and we took bets on it. And we hung him naked, shamefully, on that cross for the entire world to see, though he'd never done anything wrong. And the whole time we're doing that, he looked at us and said, I love you. I love you. You know, if somebody tries to nail me to a cross, I got much different words than I love you. And they would include some different four-letter words for sure. That wouldn't be I love you. And Jesus says, I love you. What would it look like for us in those boxes to say, gosh, what if I was a worshiper consumed? absolutely consumed with giving God my entire attention, my entire life, because he's been so merciful to me. Every day, every day is really another opportunity to present your body, to present my body, our bodies, our entire lives to God as living sacrifices. That's what Romans 12 is saying. Because of the fact that he gave his one and only son, as a living sacrifice for us. That daily act of submission and surrender, that's called worship in light of his mercy. That, when you do that daily, that will transform your life. That will make your life into a transforming life. And what's happening in that time and space is your mind is being renewed. It's being literally changed. It's not like, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, man, should I eat bacon? Bacon or should I eat bacon? (laughs) Maybe I should eat bacon, bacon, right? (laughs) Having a transforming life is not about just changing your mind, although it's a part of it. Um, It's having your mind changed, and it's deeper. There's this this, uh, illustration, I had a friend of mine whose sister was working in some kind of cognitive therapy, shock therapy for the brain. Oh, it sounds scary to me. Um, You know, I'm gonna stick my finger in a light bulb anyways. I mean, that's nuts, shock therapy to the brain. I don't know. The idea was is that inside your brain you got all these little sparks and they typically spark a certain way. And if you could get that spark to spark different over here, it would maybe change the way that you think, the way that you behave. I I don't understand, that's my crude definition. And my buddy was saying, you know, my sister's not a believer, she's actually an atheist. And she's coming to me, and she's explaining to me that, hey, we're doing this uh, study on this one person, and there is something wild about their brain, like something explosive happened in there. And, and if you could track the timeline, they're radically different. This, this was their life then. This is their life now. And he's sitting there listening, he's like, yeah, that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and saves you. That moment when he gives you a brand new heart, you get a renewed mind, a changed mind. A spark goes off. I mean, if you're here and you've experienced that moment of salvation, right? Where you go, man, I'm a dark, deep sinner, and I can't get this straight. And I'll probably never get this straight, and I need Jesus. You've experienced that moment. You're like, okay, I trust and I believe. He came, and he died on the cross for me. He left the tomb empty. And you go, today, I believe. And you're saved. That's that moment where the spark goes off. And then you get baptized, right? And then after that, you think, oh, I've been baptized. I'm going to be so good, now. I'm a better Christian. And then the next day, you sin again. <laughs> And you're right back to the beginning of this text, mercy. Like for some reason, I think we all think that once you get saved, you no longer need mercy. But the reality is mercy is the food that worshipers eat. Yeah. Mercy is the food that worshipers eat. Lastly, uh, and we still got two more points, by the way. Uh, (laughs) This is point one. We're still in the first phrase. Just so y'all know, buckle up, order your lunch in if you need to. No, I'll, I'll, we'll get through this, trust me. This is just such an important point, right? Like this, this first phrase is so important. Being a transformed family is so important. So after laying hold of God's mercy, after realizing that we're called to worship God, um, then what in terms of transformation? Then from that point forward, you got to ask God, what do you want? God, what do you want? What are your commands for me? What are your desires for me? How do you want to correct me? What promises are you giving me? Uh, In verse 2 of Romans 12, it talks about discerning what is the will of God. Uh, The will of God, in, in in a more simplistic term, is just that. It's his desires, it's his commands, it's his corrections, it's his promises for us. It's, it's, it's every day asking God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What do you want to see changed in my life? That's discerning. It's figuring out. Discerning means to figure out. It's like when you have a problem, right? Like, we've got a little bit of rain lately, and I'm pretty sure our basement's going to have a little bit of water in it. It's a problem. I need to discern what needs to happen to fix that. Now, interestingly, here's the reality. We have a concrete basement floor, so I've kind of ignored it for the last couple of years. Yeah, that's a great analogy for our lives, isn't it? What you got in your life that you've been ignoring? You've just kind of been letting it slide. Hey, it ain't so bad. It's bad, but it's not that bad. I don't, need, I don't got time to deal with that right now, right? This idea of being transformed, grab it a hold of God's mercy, Living as a consumed worshiper of God also ties to discerning what the will of God is. His desires, His commands, His corrections, His promises. You sum all that up in one word. You know what that word is? Obedience. It's obedience. we, We have a tendency to shy away from the word obedience, don't we? Sounds legalistic. Sounds like a stuffy church. Sounds like they like those lists of things that you should do or should not do. Well, you know... Here's the reality, life is full of that, deal with it. (laughs) You know? Like if you were to put that same type of thinking on your job, you would never work. We readily accept that in our jobs. Well, I mean for the most part, until we're standing at the water cooler with our other employees and we're complaining about our boss, right? (laughs) But we accept it, because why? Because it promises us something. What does it promise you? A paycheck. I tell you something the paycheck in the bank ain't gonna last as long as eternity in heaven so the promise of the hope of heaven makes it really easy for me to look at those lists of rights and wrongs and go you know man mercifully he's given me so much now my obedience is not a I have to now it's wow I get to try this and when even when I fail guess what else I get his love and his mercy all again listen to a book this weekend with my wife and the author kept making the point that the thing about God is God doesn't come for all of us who think we have it all together. He comes for those who jacked it all up. That's who he loves to come to. He comes to you in that. It's the message from last week. The woman at the well. That's who he went to. The jacked up, messed up, shame-filled, dirty, filthy, rebellious, broken losers. Not the winners. Obedience. Now you want to. You don't have to. Well, you should, though, shouldn't you? See, the whole should and ought to, have to. You can wipe those out of our language and just go, man, I get to you. You understand God's mercy. You're consumed with God as a worshiper. And now you're worried about God's will. Now you go, okay, God, tell me what to do. Tell me what not to do. Help me now to live that way. I need to move on from this. That's such a good point. I thought like I could point this for preach this for like three weeks. A transformed family. Second phrase, a family who glorifies God. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 11, 1. Shift gears. All this really is, is is kind of picking up where we left off with transformation and moving forward a little bit more on the timeline. It's really all this next point is. Um, when you think about being a transformed person, part of a transformed church family, now you want a family who glorifies God, right? First Corinthians uh, 10, 31 through 11, 1. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Says says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. I do not seeking, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Hear his uh, motivation? That they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's a wild thing. When Paul says that, it drives me nuts. Imitate me, he says. What he's saying here is, he, he's saying... Um, that he wants to see the Corinthian church become a family that glorifies God in everything they do. But what does it mean to glorify God, right? If You kind of got that first transformed and transforming phase. Now, what does it mean to actually glorify God? How do you grow in that area of being able to glorify Him? Let's start with the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word glory or glorify, as Donnie said earlier, is basically weighty attention. Or give weighty attention. So you think of the distinguished person that shows up for Christmas. I don't know who that may be for you. Maybe it's grandma or grandpa, right? Or, or maybe, like, for us, when our daughter and our son-in-law and their two kiddos from Texas, they're moving back here pretty soon when they get here, the person of, that's going to get the weighty attention is our, what, month-and-a-half-year-old grandson, the one I haven't seen in person yet. Weighty attention. As soon as they show up, I'm going to be like, where's Milo? Where's Milo? I want to see Milo because I haven't, I haven't held Milo. I haven't touched him. I haven't, I haven't been able to be with him yet. That's a picture of weighty attention. If you're a young person you're dating somebody, it's every time you think about the person you're dating, right? Or if you're a young person you're not dating somebody, it's, it's, it's when you're thinking about the person you want to date. <laughs> it comes back to that whole consumed image, right? You're giving weighty attention to something or someone as the foremost object of affection in your life at that time. And to glorify God means to simply give God that seat of ultimate attention and honor in your life. It's to ask the question, God, would this honor you? What will honor you the most right now in my life? And the reality is that we give God glory, the glory he deserves, every time we take ourselves off the throne of our hearts and recognize him as the true king who should occupy that throne. The other thing that Paul makes very clear here when it comes to glorifying God is that we're to do this with everything in our lives, right? Uh, He he, he talks about the very small things, eating and drinking. Did you know that you can glorify God in your eating and drinking? One, if you think it's okay to drink, fine, don't get drunk, right? If you like to eat food, don't overeat food. I say that to a bunch of us fat Baptists, okay? I join the crowd. (laughs) If he, even, if he says, hey, you're to glorify God in the small things, he moves it from the small thing to the largest thing really, really fast when he talks about how to relate to other people. And he does it in this text. He says that we're to give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. And he also says that he, Paul, he says, I try to please everyone. And I try to please everyone while not seeking my own advantage because I'm trying to seek their salvation. What he's saying is that We glorify God when we seek what is best for others around us, and we do this especially when we seek their salvation. The last thing Paul says here is that the the church should imitate his life this way. Um, Who's he imitating, though? He's imitating Jesus. So I used to, I've told people for years, imitate my life the parts that look like Jesus. Jesus. Don't imitate the parts that don't look like Jesus. Confront me for the things that don't look like Jesus. Okay? Imitate the things that look like Jesus, though. I'm never going to be a perfect picture of that. None of us ever will be. And I know Paul would say the same, because he's the same apostle who wrote, I'm the chief of sinners. So like, oh, well, you're the chief of sinners? You want me to imitate you? How crazy is that? I don't want to imitate you. You don't want to imitate a perfect person. Well, that's Jesus. And that's who Paul was imitating. Jesus. That's the key, I think, Imitating the life of Jesus. That helps us become a family who glorifies God in everything we think, say, desire, do. (coughs) Think about Jesus. The reality is Jesus didn't come to destroy people, right? He didn't come to hurt people. He came to give his life as a ransom for sinners, for broken people, filthy people, rebellious people, outcasts. People who were imprisoned came to set them free. He came to do that and leave the tomb empty so that we had we the proof that the promise of heaven is true. Jesus' life, you think about his life, his life was completely selfless. He could have stayed in heaven, right? I mean, heaven. It makes Trump Towers or Trump's mansions look like toys, doesn't it? That's where Jesus was. Why didn't he stay there? I, why, why would you even leave? There's no reason, you have no reason to leave. You don't need anything, right? If, if you're in heaven. When Jesus selflessly left and he came here to this very needy, very broken place, he, he didn't have to, he chose to. Jesus really is the only one that ever had free will. When you think about this concept of free will, oh God, I probably shouldn't get started on that. I'm just gonna go there for a minute. The idea of free will is crazy. He's the only one that was ever totally free. He's not bound to anything broken. You and I, however, are broken. How do you know that even your best decision wasn't at least minutely motivated by some selfish desire? How do you know? You don't know. I don't know either. Sure, I can choose. We have the, the, the freedom to choose. But what motivates the choice? What controls the choice? You think you and I and our autonomous being control those choices, well what does that tell you? We're broken. Even I on my best day would choose good things for very wrong reasons. Jesus is the only one who ever chose all the right things for the very right reasons with a very pure, perfect motivation. It's why he could die on a cross for people like you and I. Life was completely selfless, selfless, focused on giving his life away and giving the gift of eternal life to his enemies, to his enemies, so they could become family. That's who Paul's imitating, and that's who he's calling us to imitate. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Third phrase. Third phrase was a family of missional disciples. Now, here's the thing. We spent a lot of time on this in message one of this series, so I'm probably going to blow past most of my notes, but I do want to read the passages and make a couple of notes and be done, okay? Uh, and I would encourage you, go back to listen to the first message in this series, because it really touches on this last point pretty well. But Matthew 28, 18-20, Acts 1-8, <coughs> when read together, really underscore and support um, this picture of a family of missional disciples. Listen to it, beginning with the Matthew passage. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, listen to this. I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a beautiful promise. God's promises are everywhere right alongside of his commands. When God commands you to do something, look close enough and keep looking and keep searching. You will find the promise attached to the command. Always. Always. There's a promise that says, you need to do this, but I will enable you. I will be with you. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power. Starts with the promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He's talking to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And you will be my witnesses. This is the command part of it. You need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. For us, those words don't mean a whole lot. right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But what is easy to see here is that Jesus does envision his church becoming a family of missional disciples, right? That's what he sees. That's the picture in Jesus' mind. Here's the thing. We, we oftentimes take that vision of Jesus, and we, we don't telescope it. We, we microscope it, okay? We, you know, a microscope makes, um, was it microscope makes, no. Telescope makes bigger things look smaller, and a microscope makes small things look bigger, so we oftentimes take the mission of God for the church and we, we make it more like a microscope. And we get these little minuscule things. So here's the mission of our church, right? We're, we're going to be more diverse. There's one way of doing that. Or the mission of our church becomes all about the big, beautiful building or the lights and the smoke. Or it becomes all about our hero, the pastor, who speaks so graciously, which is definitely not me, right? I don't speak so graciously. We always used to say a friend of mine was more like sweet tea, which I'm not. I'm more like two shots of bourbon. <laughs> um, so I recognize I can own that. It's OK. But you can add a little bit of sweet tea to bourbon in it. Anyways, forget it. <sighs> we want to keep a telescope kind of vision that makes something really, really large come into focus. Something really, really large that you can't really grasp, but it brings into focus. And when you think about this vision Jesus has, that's the kind of vision it is. It's so out of this world. The idea that that we would be able to change the world to the ends of the earth just simply by witnessing. Witnessing is like giving your story. I think Heather did that recently for the news because of the storm that went through and knocked down a tree on her house. Imagine if Heather was on TV tomorrow night just going, have you heard about Jesus? And I know Heather well enough to know that Heather being the first member of the church probably would do that anyways. (laughs) She's going to shoot me after this. (laughs) That's all witnessing means. It's sharing the love of Jesus. Hey, it's just sharing that message. I'm a sinner. I met Jesus. He loves me. And he loves you too. You know he died on the cross for you? you know what sins you committed that separate you from God? He wants to receive you right now. God, would you want to come into that with me? That's, that's all it means. It's all it means to be a witness. Acts 1-8 kind of gives a bunch of different uh, descriptors of where to be witnesses at. Jerusalem your own backyard. Samaria is like this really uncomfortable place nobody would go to like we talked about last week. And the ends of the earth. It's the scariest of places. But you don't know what's at the end of the earth. It feels like you might fall off the edge of the earth. But you're going there. Jesus is with you the entire time. The thing about the Matthew 28 passage, I'll make this final comment and then we'll, we'll conclude. Um, in Matthew 28, it talks about making disciples. Um, and we're talking about being on mission, right? Being missional disciples. <coughs> if you were to take an image and put this image in your mind, so we're all about vision today, right? What's the vision? Um, put this vision in your head. Put this picture in your head. Uh, if you've got a coin, put the coin in your head. A coin has two sides heads or tails, right? You flip the coin, you call it in the air heads, and it hits the ground and goes tails. Oh, you lose a million bucks. Oh, that sucks. No, you just put the coin in your mind. I only said all that to get the coin in your mind. Two sides of the coin. The coin is called mission. Um, the two sides of the coin are evangelism and discipleship. Uh, without one, the coin no longer exists. You could have two halves of a coin, the two sides. You could be all about discipleship, training believers to follow Jesus and obey God, right? Or you could be all about evangelism, sharing my faith with unbelievers, helping them to follow Jesus, sharing the gospel. And here's the reality, we oftentimes turn the two on each other. Um, Oh, they're more about discipleship, or they're more about evangelism, or I'm more about discipleship, or I'm more about evangelism. And here's the reality, when you do that, You set yourself up against god because god didn't call us to be merely disciples or merely evangelists he called us to be missional matthew 28 is very clear we're to go and share the gospel we're to see people get saved because of the message that we share and then as soon as they believe and get baptized we are to start training them and here's the other reality the church in america has done this more than anywhere else the paid guy on the stage, that's his job, not my job. And that's wrong. The scriptures don't speak of that at all. The scriptures speak of that as being all our jobs. My job is to do that work, yes, but to equip and empower. That's our elders' jobs, to equip and empower an entire church family to do the work of mission, to share the gospel with the lost, and then to train other believers how to live. Can I just tell you something? Do you, would you write stagnant? in that box for your spiritual life, I'm not telling you to write the word, I'm just asking you, would you have written that word there? Stagnant. If you have written that word there, or if when I just said that, you thought I should probably write that word there. (laughs) 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 I saw some of you grabbing your pen, so I instantly knew, oh, you think I'm telling you you have to. You don't have to. But if somewhere deep down inside, you're like, yeah, there's probably something really stagnant about my faith, can I just tell you, one of the quickest ways to grow is to start sharing your faith. And start being trained how to obey God. And then start taking a step and going, I'm going to train others how to obey God. And I'm going to start opening his word with other people. And here's the crazy thing, too. The last thing, i gotta, I got to quit because we have been at this long enough. You don't have to be 15 years old in your faith. You don't have to be a spiritual teenager to go do any of this. That's the great thing about this. You know, um, some of the most evangelistic, inviting, welcoming people when it comes to church, when it comes to Jesus, are people who just started following the Lord. My friend TJ, who was my brother-in-law, I know he's here somewhere, that guy has invited more people to church in the last year than than I think I have. The funny thing is, the older you get sometimes, Nelson, you probably attest to this, right? He's like, you sucker. (laughs) I can see it in his face. I don't know why I'm picking all you guys by name today. I don't know what's going on. I hope I'm not overstepping my boundaries. But <laughs> but the older you get in your faith, it's like the more comfortable you get and the less excited you get to invite people or something. It's weird. Like three-month-old babies in Jesus, those folks, like, invite more people than, and it's crazy. And they're just like, hey, I found a church for me. I started following this dude named Jesus. It's really cool. I got baptized. You want to go? What? They accept me for who I am. They don't judge me. Because they want to be like Jesus. You don't have to wait until you're 15 years old in your faith with a degree or a seminary degree or letters. (laughs) You got everything you need. And Jesus said that right here. I mean, think about His disciples. I'm going to look at last thing for sure. Last thing. (laughs) I'm so thankful y'all are gracious We're going to hit an hour. I'm sorry. Last thing, Peter. Y'all know Peter, right? from the Bible? Yeah, Peter was the dude, the Jesus, the Last Supper, he was like, hey, you know what you're going to do? You're going to totally deny me three times before the crow, for the the crow crows or whatever, not the crow, but the rooster crows. Yeah, that's right. Crows don't crow. Crows, (laughs) crows caw, crows caw, the rooster crows. Three times before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. What does he do? Totally denies Jesus three times. Like, epic failure, right? Epic sin. I'm thinking you could take any other sin and you could put it right up next to that and go, man, that's that's pretty much on par. Denying Jesus, cussing out Jesus, basically, next to the fire. Girl asks him, do you know Jesus? Oh, hell no, I don't know her. I don't know him. That's, that's what's going on, right? That's what Peter does. Totally turns his back on Jesus. And like we like to like make a linear um, list of our sins, like somehow my sin's not as bad as his and so on and so forth. But three days later, Jesus is resurrected, and Peter is with him. A couple days after that, they're walking on the beach, and Jesus restores him. You could legitimately say Peter is about three days old in his faith. And then roughly, I think it's, what is it, 50 days after the resurrection is when the day of Pentecost happens, when the Holy Spirit comes, right? (coughs) Now he's 50 days old. Anybody here 50 days old in your faith? Nope, probably not. Not that I don't think so. Maybe. Most of us are probably older than 50 days. What does Peter do? Preaches a message filled by the Holy Spirit because God followed through on what he said he would do. I'll give you my spirit. You'll be my witnesses. And 50 days later, Peter preaches a message as a 50-year-old Christian, 50-day-old Christian, 50-day-old baby Christian. Just get in your mind. And 3,000 people come to follow Jesus that day. And from that point forward, the church explodes, and we're part of that same movement today. You do not have to be very old in your faith to evangelize and disciple. I said I'd make this point quick, and I didn't, did I? Love (sighs) y'all. I think the last thing I should say... (laughs) This is conclusion, for real. You can come on up. This is conclusion, for real, at 59 minutes in. (coughs) That's the family we want to become, okay? Okay? I don't know where you fit when you go back to those four boxes, right? Me currently, church family currently, future me, future church family, I don't know what word you wrote. I hope that out of all this, God would give you at least one word or one image for each of those boxes and that you would share those with us. Like seriously, and you don't have to put your name on it. You keep it impersonal, but what I think would be really cool is if many of you would write that out somehow. Put it in an email, put it in a text, send it to me. I would love to compile this with our elders as best we could. Like we give you a few days or something. I'd love to share that in an email or something with the rest of us and just say, hey, collectively, this is what we all said. And then just, let's just trust Jesus together to do that work, right? So we want to be a transformed family. We want to be a, a, a family of missional disciples. We want to be a family that, that uh, glorifies God with our lives. I think the way that we do that is we spend time at the foot of the cross. The foot of a bloody cross. Where a perfect Savior was broken, bloodied, where He died for you and me. Died in our place. Then <coughs> He left the tomb empty three days later. Gave us the promise of heaven. And when we spend time there. I think God fills those boxes in for us. And then gives us His Spirit and helps us to pursue that. And I think you look back a year from now and you go, we didn't live a year of surviving anymore. We lived a year of advancing the kingdom forward. That's where I want to be. Would you go with me? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Again. a crazy, crazy, crazy privilege to stand in front of other people. Total broken sinner, just like every other person in this room the privilege to proclaim your message of your gospel and the glories of where you might take us. Thank you. Thank you for your work in our lives. We pray, God, that you would lead us to the foot of your cross over the next few moments as we close. pray that you would do a work of transformation in us, help us to glorify you with our lives, and help us to see what it means to get on mission with you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from the well